to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. I am very excited for today's episode, and I am sure you will find it fascinating. We will be talking about people who died from drug overdoses. Overdose deaths are the tip of the iceberg in the addiction problem, and the 2020 preliminary overdose data is very grim. 83,000 overdose deaths representing a 21% increase. The fentanyl deaths increased 45% nationwide. It is easy to be alarmed by statistics, but each number is a real person who leaves behind family and friends. When deaths happen in the emergency department, we contact the medical examiner and the family. We sit with the family and have learned how to deliver very terrible news. I've always wondered what it's like for first responders and investigators who go to a death scene. Let's hear our question from our listener. Hello, Dr. Lev. My name is Garrett Trainer, and first of all, I want to start by thanking you for bringing us the High Truths podcast and spreading light on this problem uh, because it is a serious issue that we have in the U.S. right now. Uh, I'm a real estate agent. Previously, I spent five years in law enforcement, however, and working in downtown areas amongst other areas. A large part of what we do in law enforcement was dealing with people who are under the influence of drugs or responding to overdoses. We learned to use naloxone, which is commonly referred to as Narcan. And, you know, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And I've recently learned that San Diego has an overdose team that responds to overdoses. Can you tell us what they do? And uh, thank you. Thank you, Garrett, for your question and for your service to the community in law enforcement. I definitely love our San Diego overdose team. They go by the narcotic team and team 10. And to answer your question, I invited a leader from the overdose team, Special Agent Ed Byrne. Ed is one of the few people who is not an emergency physician that I can talk to or text at all hours of the night because he is on 24-7 responding to overdoses. Ed, welcome to High Truths. Uh, Thank you for having me, doctor. So, Ed, tell our listeners, what is your path of becoming a special agent and an expert in these overdose cases? So, Rene, my, my path to this was initially um, being in HSI, which is Homeland Security Investigations, as a special agent. We are the investigative arm of DHS, or Homeland Security, and we sit inside of ICE, and we have the uh, we have the duty and responsibility to deal with anything that is customs law related under Title 19, and that means anything that kind of enters the United States or leaves the United States has to follow different types of protocols uh, and abide by certain types of law. That's currency, any type of physical goods, um, agriculture, of course, that kind of stuff. So one of the things that I had been doing was I had focused on. Um, MDMA or ecstasy that was coming into the United States from northern uh, northern Europe and the Netherlands area, and those were usually dark web purchases. 
And from those purchases, people receive them here and they sometimes get interdicted coming in through the postal system uh, once they come into the U US for customs inspection. And during that, one of the things that I wound up getting was um, a product called 4AMPP, which turns out to be a Schedule II um, chemical that is utilized in the manufacturing of fentanyl illicitly. And um, from that, I did a lot of research on it. We got an arrest on that on an individual who was receiving it down in the San Isidro area and was transiting back into Mexico and taking it down there. And that right there gave us the, a really good indicator because we were already seeing fentanyl come in through our border here in San Diego through both, both ports of entry, uh, San Isidro and Otay. And that kind of indicated that we were getting production manufacturing actually happening in Mexico also. Um, we had focused and still focus a lot on China um, and other countries around the world that have large um, capacity chemical manufacturing abilities. Um, it's much the same as what was dealt with um, with methamphetamine. When methamphetamine really kind of took off in the United States, we had a lot of smaller type labs. The, there were different types of recipes. People were getting cold medicine, um, leaching down the chemicals out of that and making it kind of in their bathroom or in the back of their car. And then the Mexican cartels were able to kind of corner that market by making what they call super labs down in Mexico. So most all methamphetamine now comes from Mexico and is very high purity quality methamphetamine. Um, with fentanyl, we still deal with it from China on a, some parts, but the big thing is kind of the interdiction of um, precursor chemicals. That's where we really kind of know if we start making an impact. And um, that expertise from doing tons and tons of research and staying up at night and kind of learning more and more about fentanyl, what is involved in it. And then that leading me into kind of a path of all of the different um, types of people and players that are involved in this, that it got to a point where we had some prosecutors here in the county, um, Terry Perez, who was the chief of major narcotics at the DA's office, um, she had gone to some conferences and we had seen across the country, there were some pop-ups of um, some police departments trying to get cases together off of overdose deaths. Um, when we look at the United States, we can think or talk about a region in the U.S. and we can say that, you know, people have an accent from the South and they may have a type of cuisine in the South that they eat or in the Northeast. Well, drug use kind of has a little bit of that same flavor to it where it's um, we can talk about drugs uh, at, at the drug level by definition, but the way people consume it, where certain types of drugs are consumed more frequently than others across the country, those things all play a part. And so in San Diego, we consider this county uh, it's got a high saturation for narcotics, but it's also a really transient County, And what I mean by that is that the two ports of entry here, uh, Otay and San Isidro, narcotics flow through that continuously all day long. And it's cat and mouse. We do a lot of interdiction and catch a lot of drugs. But of course, drugs still get through in uh, large quantities. Those drugs will make it up into Los Angeles. So they transit through the county. But one thing we see here is we can kind of look at trend analysis, because if something is kind of emerging out of Mexico, We'll usually see it here then, rather than places like Chicago, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, because that's a longer transit distance. 
And so once we began to really start getting law enforcement here on board, understanding the safety, DEA had come out with a ton of different uh, material talking about the safety issues. We have an incredible lab from, from DEA here, which is up in Vista, the, the, the SWIG, the Southwest uh, Drug Lab. And um, some of the people up there are experts in, of course, the chemical background of it. I can follow that to a point, but I'm not an expert in every molecular breakdown, but I'm getting pretty good. And so um, we kind of all started to fuse together over time. And from that, uh, there's a HIDA initiative here. And DEA was gracious enough to um, create or allow for the task force to be created under NTF, which is Narcotics Task Force. So it's HIDA funded. And we sit at DEA and it is made up of a multitude of agencies. So it is a very rare task force because you will not find many task force across the country that the FBI, HSI and DEA are all part of that work as cohesively as we do. Uh, and we also have SDPD in there and our obligation in that task force is to the city of San Diego. Um, and I am on call in the sense that anyone can reach out to me and we can get into kind of some of the dynamics as to what those requests would be and what they're for. And that's how we got there. So our task is any overdose death in the city of San Diego, team 10 is called out to as long as it has what is believed to have an opioid uh, type of nexus, anything with heroin or fentanyl or pills. Uh, methamphetamine still kills a lot of people in the county. But uh, resource-wise, we just don't have enough manpower to kind of cover all of them. It's really kind of going after this. This poses a much different kind of hazard than other traditional drugs. Yeah, I mean, um, fentanyl is different. It's just a few grains, like a few grains of salt can people drop dead. And, and the people who are dying are people who have a known addiction, but also people who are not addicted, who are just experimenting. Um, so we kind of answered uh, Garrett's question. I wanted to make sure that we got to that. He said, what is Team 10? What is this overdose team? And you answered that. This is a, a special team of different agencies um, that answer to the county and respond to uh, overdose deaths and, uh, and look at that. And um, just as I um, connect with the medical community, it is very cool to say that San Diego has an overdose team and they have a mass spectrometer in the back of their car and they could test whatever, you know, we're, we're finding at scene. And I think that, you know, physicians find that uh, very cool. Yes. Uh, and, and kind of um, with this task force, everybody kind of brings like a specialty uh, from their own agency that really kind of contributes to the success of the team overall. Uh, one of the biggest things has been unfortunately, that fentanyl poses such a hazard that initially when it really became mainstream across the country, most police departments on the local level and even on federal level uh, completely stopped doing field testing of narcotics, which had been done for decades, usually using a little Nick kit pouch uh, just for the safety of it. Um, HSI does not have that involved. Uh, none of the DHS components have that restriction kind of because for the most part, part dealing with the ports and dealing with the wholesale coming in, we, we, we have to actually interact with it. And from that, we have two different ways of testing um, fentanyl, no matter where we go, anyone can ask us to come test and we will test. So we have all the way from the uh, rapid response BTNX dip strip 
which breaks us down to, I believe, 200 nanogram level to just give us a positive that it's in there, all the way to a, uh, a very highly expensive mass spectrometer that uh, myself and the other HSI agent both have in our vehicles. And we can mobilize and take it to anyone who requests um, on-scene testing, which is what we conduct during our death investigations. Now, when I first met you at the beginning of the pandemic, you were responding to all overdoses, whether they died or not. But I think over time, that number has gone up so much that your resources can't respond to people who just overdoses if they lived. And now you're just responding to deaths. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a tough scenario for us uh, when we go. And we still are responding to some calls that there isn't a death. Uh, we had one a couple of months ago on board one of the commercial fishing vessels here in the harbor where they had four um, go down after it landed here. Luckily, none of those people passed away. They all survived, uh, but we were able to work back from the boat and enact an arrest within two hours on that case. And, uh, you know, that was with San Diego PD and Harbor PD, a very, uh, very good fluid law enforcement operation that went down. and. When we have those, well, we that would be considered basically a mass conflict event for us. Uh, most overdoses involve a single person, but if we have, you know, more than one, we have an event that's kind of happening, and, and that there's a different um, dynamic to that kind of case. Um, we do have um, a different type of thing that we've kind of like learned over this two and a half years that this team has been around, where. We've gained a lot of really good knowledge to how to do these cases. Uh, this team is essentially considered, I don't want it to sound braggadocious, but this team is really considered the, the a tip of the spear team involved in death investigations and overdose deaths. Um, 285 for me. And you're talking about, and that's a lot of death scenes. And a you're lot. talking about... Um, basically an entire team event. So we really do not work a case where it's traditional with investigators or detectives, where it's usually uh, one and a partner, where they're just two. We operate on these on the entire scale of the team moving fluidly at one time, because the beginning of the case is really like the most important part of it. And that's from the body scene itself. And for the listeners out there and, and I, I just want to share the, the collaboration with law enforcement and the medical community. Um, it, I think for each time that you take this product off the streets, you are saving lives by eliminating, I mean, fentanyl out it. People are, are getting a cluster of fentanyl. They didn't know what they were using. They're killing people who don't know what they're taking. And, and uh, I think that that's similar to murder. Um, and getting that off the street is important. But the other thing, you go further and, and you do talk to people and connect people to treatment and connect people to medical care. I know that uh, uh, you worked uh, one case when I called you on a John Doe who uh, tested positive for fentanyl. I didn't know who he was. And you were able to get his name, get his family and do, what do you call it? A knock and talk at the do door? Uh, when you went to the scene and there were several other people who were having chest pain and, and, and you connected them to treatment. Yeah, correct. So um, one of the things is uh, 
these are this type of case is so new to kind of everybody in the in play, um, including law enforcement themselves. So the problem that fentanyl really poses is that it does not carry the same reactive um, benefits from an enforcement point of view or from an interaction or intervention point of view. Um, the problem with fentanyl is that it takes away the ability for people to, you know, do something and then kind of mature from that activity and make a decision as what path they take. So what I tell people a lot of times is as parents, which we are, um, you can teach your children um, all the right things that you think are the best path for them to take. Uh, but we all know, because we were all younger, um, some of us probably a little more um, a little more mischievous than others, where you could be told that alcohol is not good, you shouldn't drink it, and you have to wait till you're 21. But of course, you drink some when you're in high school with friends, but you don't die from that. Well, you shouldn't be dying from that unless there's some type of other action like a DUI accident. Um, but normally you don't, but you'll learn from it. You'll say, this is what my experience was in my head. Do I want to feel that way? And that can run the gamut. Marijuana, cocaine, uh, methamphetamine, even up to heroin, even though most people never start with heroin as like the first thing they've ever had. Um, and those things normally really couldn't kill you, even if you snort a line of cocaine, you'll learn that, hey, I don't know if I like to be out of control of my faculties. And the problem that heroin poses that, or pardon me, fentanyl poses, it's truly an absolute Russian roulette play, meaning that the first time you take it, you have zero idea of what the potency level of fentanyl is in whatever way you take it in. And it can kill you immediately on that first attempt. And even users have no idea what the potency level is each time they consume it, if they're continuous users. And so um, we have learned because we started a team from scratch and just kind of, you know, if we look at how, if we were to introspect and look at ourselves now, we would look back at two and a half years ago when we started and we go, oh my God, we looked like such rookies when we did this. We, you know, look how bad we were at this, or we didn't think of that and follow up on it. And we've gotten to this point now where we have gone through every growing pain you can possibly do in these cases. And one of the things that I kind of started noticing early was the age of our victims. And that got us to this point where I felt it was important to kind of learn from whatever we could about a victim or whether they survived or whether they passed away at their age, how did they start? Where did they originally start down the road of uh, getting to using um, any types of opioids or pain pills or fentanyl or any of that stuff? And we began to see, I could see like a progression. We had young people who were prescribed medication for, you know, a sports related injury in their teens. And, um, you know, just compounding that information and then realizing that we needed to find some other alternatives because it's um it's traumatic for a family especially of a young person to you know find their body lifeless in their room they call 911 they may have had a history of having to deal with this kind of issue um with addiction with their loved one for a while you know they go through a lot of stuff they've been lied to 
They may have been stolen from for money. And then what happens is they call the medical examiner. It's kind of like the, the apex of this problem they've dealt with. And normally the medical examiner, would, the police might show up, fire, they, they, they pronounce that person dead. The medical examiner investigator comes, they do a very quick talk with the family. Then they go process the, the death scene, which is you know, fairly quick, and then they're gone. But now you kind of introduce our team that shows up there at the scene and you have, um, you know, basically around eight to 10 federal agents and task force officers walking into your house it's kind of a shocker to a lot of people to wonder why we're there. But for most people, when it gets explained to them what we're doing, um, you know, I think some for some people, it's a good a lot of solace that it shows them that the, you know, their loved one matters in some capacity. We don't want it to happen to another person. And our job is to go track down where it came from. And um, I consider you guys contract tracers. We do contact tracing for COVID. You guys are the contact tracing agency for overdoses. Essentially, it it, it could be kind of um, that. That's a good way to kind of uh, assimilate it. If you look back at the one we did with with you that night, was we found out about this incident later, and that's kind of one of our biggest problems we've had. We're missing a very strong tool in this county, which is OD Maps. Um, that's a, a free tool from Hida for tracking. And I get it. When we're going to found get out it. about it later. We were able to go back to the location where it took place, and we identified ourselves as to why we were there. The people were compliant with us. They invited us in. They allowed us to look around. We found fentanyl in that apartment showed it to them. We discussed the safety aspects of it. No one was in trouble for anything for that. Um, and we told them, you know, this is why we're here. And I know some of them, I believe, showed up at your hospital later on to get tested out and, and to make sure they're good. Right. I got I got more patients out of the scene. And, and this man that I took care of, I put him on a ventilator and sent him to the ICU. And that could have been the end of my day and I could have moved on to the next patient. But I think of overdoses uh, like COVID cluster, who else is affected? Who else could expose? Who? I mean, if someone took some pills, those there are more pills out there. Someone else could take them, and they could die also. And that's why I take the extra step to to call you. And this was an added benefit because I did meet the other people from the scene, and they were very honest and very wide out, scared, and felt like they dodged a bullet. They could have died too. Yeah. Uh, that was not the intent. They had no idea that it was fentanyl. They were happy to help you and and very honest with me. Um, the person I took care of was having chest pain, and um, I reassured him that he was going to to live and and be okay. Um, and right, that's it, it. It's a it's a different type of drug. And and when we explain what we're doing and why we're contacting both medical end and law enforcement. I think that partnership is so important. We save more people's lives. Yeah. And, and there's a ton of resources that are out there as an enforcement side, especially as federal agents. You know, we can't be, um, we can't really promote one thing or another. We can give people truths and we can give them facts, but, you know, we have learned that at one point we realized, hey, we're getting asked a lot of questions sometimes at scenes that are not things that we would normally be asked uh, in the course of any of our duties. And in all actuality, 
I'll tell you that it, it, there are very few federal agents in any agency anywhere across the country that are dealing with this the same way we are. Um, we are not normally people who show up at death scenes, um, unless it's like a terror event, um, that kind of thing, or an air, or airplane crash. Um, so this is very unusual for federal agents to be even into this position. But uh, over time, we, we're integrated with so many different organizations throughout the county, different types of task forces involving the health, um, people in the health field, fire, hazmat, uh, rehabilitation, um, all kinds of different things. And we wound up because we have such a close um, relationship with, say, the, in the district attorney's office regarding this, we were able to get these um, handouts that we can just hand out. They're both in Spanish and in English. And basically, uh, if we see people at the scene, um, either they ask for it or not, we'll hand these handouts to them. And it gives them, like, essentially the roadmap to a lot of resources that they may not have known were available uh, for phone numbers and places to reach out that the county has in place. Mm -hmm. And we think like that. They're connecting people to treatment. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. it, it, well, yeah, giving so them would have the thought the law enforcement is connecting people to treatment. Yeah. And the other issue is safety. So uh, one of the things that we kind of really picked up on, uh, you know, I talk with people all over the country. I'm involved in, I'm part of DHS's uh, CWMD hazmat team, which, which is um, countering weapons of mass destruction that falls under DHS now. And fentanyl poses a ton of different um, nightmarish possibilities. So we can just look at it just kind of on the basis of it's killing a lot of people and that's in the, the use, but there's a lot of nefarious actions that it can be used for. And one of the things that we kind of deal with is as we talk to people around the country, we find out how it is viewed by either courts or law enforcement in other places. And I started to look back in the Northeast where they really started to get hammered in the beginning. They were just having wholesale death um, through the Rust Belt and through Ohio. It was just I was in Ohio. It was absolutely amazing how many people were dying from it. I actually stopped and we, we sat and talked and I said, if we go to a, say a hotel and, you know, we process that scene and we look for things we're talking about uh, for death, usually the two milligram level of fentanyl. And that's very small. And this detectability is not easy if it becomes say dropped on a carpet of the floor in a hotel room. So we quickly kind of figured out, hey, if we render a scene safe by we processed it for the death and we leave, we don't know or have a guarantee of how well that cleanup may take place in there. So we wound up uh, making an incredible relationship with County Hazmat and San Diego Fire here, um, you know, Engine House 45, which is by the old stadium. And they are the hazmat experts for the county. And so we, on multiple occasions now, call upon them when we see an area that we believe is grossly contaminated. We've condemned, I believe, five different homes since then because of gross yeah. contamination. And hotel rooms, you, you know, it's like they're going to rent the room out again next week or the next day. And we have a lot of young children who we have, you know, one of the first death cases that I dealt with had to involve a 10 and a half month old child that was dead from it. And these are things where, you know, the user being a parent are, has it in the house. They fall asleep and a child puts something in their mouth. 
And and that's, you know, a, a problem that we have. And I think the pandemic made it worse. But um, the statistics that we're told from children is a 20% increase in overdoses of opioids in children the age of five. Um, horrible to think that babies are getting fentanyl. Yeah. Um, but wh- why why are drug dealers... Why is this so attractive to drug dealers? I mean, they're killing off their customers. Isn't that bad for business? Um, yes, and we've seen some um, we've seen some adjustment in the market because of that. But basically, that adjustment primarily was taking place uh, kind of more on the cartel level of it, from when it first introduced itself more on the wholesale level into the U.S. drug market than where we are today. But one of the big things is um, the pill. So if we look at the blue uh, M30, which is um, a lot of times people continue to say that it's laced with fentanyl. It is not laced with fentanyl at all. It is a fully produced fentanyl counterfeit pill. So um, it would normally uh, display itself as being 30 milligrams with um, Oxycontin in it and that would be what the pill would be. But when it was first brought onto the market here, people kind of got introduced to it as, hey, this is Mexican Oxy. It's a little stronger than the pill that we get here in the US. And Mm -hmm. people kind of bit into it, not even knowing anything about fentanyl. And that pill kind of raises an issue like I think that we need to get out in the education format of this. And so we as humans, uh, all of us are conditioned, uh, and you know this probably better than anyone as a doctor, um, as a child, if we were to get sick and your parent brought you to the doctor and they treated you, they may give you a shot, but then they write a prescription, you go to the pharmacy, your parent picks up the, a pill or whatever, antibiotic, you go home, you take it three times a day, you finally clear up, feel better in a couple of days. We get conditioned to accepting those pills as being um, because they have to be coming from the pharmacy. A pill, a pill to, for everything. It's a pill for, to treat everything. <laughs> well, a pill for everything, but it, it, there's a standard, right? We know that if a pill is made um, today and it's made, it's the identical pill that's produced um, a year from now. It will be identical. It will have the same amount because by law. And by patent, it has to contain the same exact from a pharmaceutical company. It has right. to contain the That's same. That's what the FDA does. Correct, but if you have that same pill that appears to be an actually pharmaceutically branded pill, but it's made illicitly by uh, drug right. men, you know, people don't uh, cartels know. in Mexico. People see the pill and identify it as, "Hey, this is legit." And they have yeah. no idea what the potency and fentanyl level is. I'm, I'm going to have a patient who did that here on High Truths. He uh, is, um, you know, he, he is not uh, what you think of as a typical drug addict or homeless person. He is uh, employed, you know, good person of society who was, you know, maybe doing the wrong thing, partying. And he had these pills. He found them looked it up on the internet, it looked like it was oxycodone. And he thought that would help him kind of balance the high from having cocaine and he overdosed on fentanyl. Luckily made it to us in time. But yeah, that was a fake pill. It was pill presses to make it look like a legit, it's it's a fraud. In four years, Ronit, we have not seen a legitimate one yet. 
Uh, all blue M30s that we have seen are all fake. They are all fentanyl pills. We have never seen a legit one here in San Diego. I've run probably in the range of 2,500 tests. Because we don't prescribe Oxy-80 anymore. The medical community doesn't. 30. Yeah, 30. And even that, we've really come down on that. So I'm, I'm not surprised that you haven't found that. But I know what your favorite thing is when you go to the scene. Um, your favorite thing is something you've never seen before. Um, and I know you are the first person to tell me what that you're finding xylazine. I didn't even know what that was or to pronounce it. I had to look it up. Yeah. So um, part of the thing for us uh, from HSI, um, one of the one of the tasks that we kind of have while we're doing these cases and doing all these tests because we are myself and um, the other HSI agent are pretty much the primary guys that are testing anything regarding these things out in the field so it's kind of odd a lot of people for many for a long time we keep trying to re-educate and educate uh, as many people as we can especially on the first responder level about fentanyl and what it really is. It is dangerous. It is very deadly, but uh, we can't have people being petrified of it as first responders. Um, it is not a drug that can get up and run after you, chase you down the street. It is there. If you see it, you acknowledge powder, you just be cognizant of it. We tell people to treat it kind of like what they would treat a bloodborne pathogen um, in law enforcement. But for us, the testing, um, our library in our spectrometer will kind of show us a multitude of different things. So fentanyl is up to the last account I got, we were right around 3,300 analog variations of fentanyl. And so some of those analogs are, um, they're basically, they're inert. They can't do anything to you. Um, they don't have enough in an active ingredient to get onto the receptor and affect you. Um, for most people are probably familiar with the term of carfentanil as being this most powerful version of it, which it is highly powerful. It was primarily used in uh, veterinary medication for large animals, tigers, hippos, rhinos, elephants, to kind of put them under to do surgical procedures. But we've gone now from that into um, another world of uh, potency where there are things way beyond carfentanil that we're uh, on a federal level attempting to, you know, really hunt down and go after. There's no, absolutely no use for that type of drug to even be watered down in some capacity is like an amazing um, feat to try to get it uh, where it's stabilized and soluble. And so one of the things is uh, in the pill, it's very consistent. It's almost always been consistently um, mixed with an acetaminophen as a binder for the pill. Um, about two, a little over two years ago, um, I was uh, some, one of the types of things that I track for information is other stuff that is seized either across the country or trying to enter the country or in other foreign countries or at sea. And we saw xylazine itself pop up in um, a load for kilos with powder, which were fentanyl powder. And it was mixed in with the powder and, um, you know, researching xylazine, we wind up finding out that this is just as heinous to deal with now because 
uh, Narcan, which has been a, an incredible tool at reversing um, people who are involved in an OD that that are still, um, you know, close enough to probably knock that off the receptor and bring them back. The xylazine won't be affected because it is not a synthetic opioid, but it presents itself the same way where the person will be unconscious, their respiration will be depressed. So it's almost like a double whammy. Point pupils. Uh, Correct. And xylazine is like clonidine, which is a, it's a, it's a, a blood pressure agent. So it drops your blood pressure, drops your heart rate, and also has those pinpoint pupils. Uh, we use clonidine to treat high blood pressure, also to use it um, sometimes in withdrawal, treat withdrawal symptoms of opioids. But um, I think if, if we are seeing that more often, we will have to, the beauty of working together with law enforcement is you tell us about these things, and if it becomes a trend, not just a you know one-time incident, then we can alert and educate the medical community that that this stuff is out there. Yeah, and, and um, one of the big things that you know is a big issue for us is we we were pretty good right now with a lot of people that are first responders being able to say see those blue pills, the M30s, and they know to associate that that pill is fentanyl. Um, powders, they're all pretty much at this point, uh, first responders are, they just stay away from it. They leave it. They'll call us. We'll come and handle that situation for them. Um, and you know, powder, it's a lot different to identify it. There's some colored ones that come around every once in a while, but we don't consider some of these things as a large enough trend that we really have to put out, um, like an alert, but we know, as you know, very well, the xylazine thing has become a big issue for poisoning control to, to be aware of. It has been associated in several deaths here in the county in the last few weeks. And so it's, it's become a big enough issue. We have, um, we have like other issues too, where some of these things, um, in this, in the spectrometer will kind of tell us, um, obviously you have to go certain places to get certain things that are being inserted inside the drugs that gives us as law enforcement kind of a, a it becomes a tool for targeting like where is that produced or where where can we see that it's being shipped from one country to a target country um, and it gives us some good leads but we try to do as much as we can to educate ourselves of course as we're going and pass that education back and there's no doubt in my mind that in reality here, this entire problem is a huge lift that has to include every element in society that is involved here. Um, we'll never arrest our way out of this problem. We'll never interdict our way out of this problem. It takes the medical community. It takes schools, education. It takes rehabilitation. Um, whatever those means are to get people educated on a the danger of it and how it's being um, put into uh, either the drug stream or or identifying it by looking at things and then how to treat those people we know that most people who are attempting to rehabilitate themselves relapse on an average of three times before they actually kind of take hold and the unfortunate problem with this is if you if you're in that point of rehabilitation, your detox and it may not give you may not give you another chance. That's and that's the, the issue. They're, the they're very susceptible yeah. at that point, and, and it's sad. We one mistake could like be that. your last, and it's it's not fair. Correct. So 
One thing that we do um, together, I look forward to, is we serve on a, a committee where we link public health, public safety, and prevention, and we discuss cases like that, like you know the pediatric cases or the xylazine cases, and getting information from you. You know, I do. I feel like I do my job better. So I, I really look forward to those meetings, and and I hope that our San Diego Credo Committee can eventually write a best practice standard um, that could be helpful to other communities on how, how to respond. So for for law enforcement, um, what is it that the medical community can do to help you um, in this job? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, we run into some issues uh, regarding that just based on HIPAA. Um, but I think that some of that stuff is is manageable in the sense that and, if and we each have our you know law enforcement has you know their security you know um, uh, concerns and medical has to keep their own. But you're right, we can go beyond that. Yeah, and, and I think what we can do is um, we can use like a statistical generating type of um, clearinghouse. So. If on the medical side, you're dealing with people who a lot of times have survived, of course, there are some who make it there. And that's how you and I see each other when, you know, we have a person who, who, um, who passed away once they've made it to the emergency room, and then we're starting the case from there. But you get a lot of people who you guys are treating that are surviving. Those people would never really have very much uh, interaction with us in any capacity. And when we come when there's usually deaths. And so at least the data that you guys could collect on the medical side, um, uh, whether it be as cursory as saying, what did you take? What did you think you took? Did you consume it as a powder? Did you consume it as a pill? Um, all of those things are super important because those can translate onto the law enforcement side. Like we can tell you because, um, I get called for deaths anywhere in the county. The medical examiner investigators call me. We, our sergeant, who is our, our team leader from SDPD, he's supposed to be called by the PD sergeant of the scene. But I, on the, I'm a, a little bit beyond that where people call me uh, for the medical examiner, they just say there's a death in Poway, an area that's not covered by San Diego PD. And I can tell you that if I get six, seven death calls in a course of 30 hours in say Vista and Oceanside, I can say that there's a trend. There's a hot batch of trend that's going on up there. Mm -hmm. What could be telling me more would be if uh, Tri-City Hospital or Green, um, we're also collecting data of people who may have been brought in over the last 30 or 40 hours in that same area and saying, running a, just a quick battery of tests on people who survived and who were able to, you know, walk out, but answered some questions. Was it powder? Was it pills? Those data pieces can all kind of conform to helping move forward on whether you need to put out a public safety announcement um, to the public or whether we concentrate more enforcement efforts in that area, or maybe they give other, a little bit of tidbit clues, or in your case, sometimes, they'll say, yes, I don't mind talking to law enforcement. I, I see the same analogy with drugs. You're asking for this so that we could contact Trace and get rid of things that are absolutely killing people. Um, so yeah, I love that. And I think with law enforcement as a medical professional gives me intelligence and, and 
you know, I, I wouldn't know that GHB is out there if, uh, unless, you know, if I, if I, you know, hear it from colleagues, but if I, I hear it from law enforcement first, um, I will see a patient who overdosed or is unconscious from something, I don't know what, and I'll find some little, I think I, I took a picture of this little that jar that looked like plant material and I sent it to you and you were able to tell me, oh, this is spice. I, I mean, I wasn't sure what it was. You were right. able to tell me what it was. Um, and uh, you also, safety, our own personal safety. I call 911. We call 911 from our emergency department a few times a month. And um, I've been assaulted by patients in the emergency department, but it is very helpful. I mean, getting this supply out of America and our communities is um, does save lives. It's the ultimate um, in prevention. So I think that that collaboration is very important. You are a, a busy man. You are on 24-7. To, I, I don't know anyone who works as hard as you do um, in a very, very tough job. I mean, dealing and talking to people who died and their families. Uh, each time I see that in the emergency department, my heart sings. I never get used to that. Um, so you are going to be a movie star soon? <laughs> yeah, um, sort of. I mean, uh, so uh, kind of you, you had me t- have to be hush hush like I was not allowed to say um, you know law enforcement secrets of kind of media is tracking you down for stardom but you're uh, you're going to be on t- some type of special yeah so you know one of the bonuses of this uh, and one of the the down uh, the kind of the uh, embarrassing parts of this is the bonus is that um, we have become known through a bunch of different um, avenues of information. I've spoken uh, to a lot of different things on the national level of the National Opioid Conference and Summit. And uh, that's gotten me kind of exposed. And that's fine because we are now being called by a multitude of enforcement agencies across the country who have found out about us and are attempting to model something or do some types of prosecutions or enforcement actions on these overdose death cases, which is great because, um, you know, those things need to be done. They were not things being done normally, but some communities are getting ravaged by it. On the other side of this, um, I get noticed by other different types of people, including journalists, writers, and in some cases, documentary um, makers. So a large, uh, well-known um, network has uh, is in the midst of making a uh, a documentary that's going to be an extensive documentary on the history of this and then where we're at today and team 10 um, this week we just finished wrapping they were with us riding with us uh, cameras in our face but we gave them a really good um, a really good kind of um, inside look of what we deal with and what the problem is on the ground today and and it'll be good when it comes out these cameras went to a death scene. They went to do two death scenes. Uh, they didn't go into the scene. They had to, you know, abide by the the kind of the normal thing where we kind of keep them out. But they they capture the event. They capture how the team responds. Our first one was at four o'clock in the morning. Um, so at four a.m. we roll out. We're usually on scene in less than twenty minutes, no matter where in the county it is. Um, we then do a brief, uh, kind of like it's a pseudo narcotics case and a homicide case together. So we do a briefing, the MA, medical examiner investigator is there. They got to kind of film that 
And once we were done working that scene and collecting things we needed from it, we did get a positive fentanyl test from that. Um, people were interviewed. We went and ate a quick breakfast, and then we started the entire day of filming for the other stuff we had scheduled. So we rolled that all the way through, um, made an arrest during that day, uh, did the interviews and finalized that at around nine o'clock at night. And then we went home, um, kind of decompressed for a few, and then got another call out the following day. So it, it's um, ebbs and flows for the deaths. We had an incredible break of around 11 days straight without one back in December, which to us, I guess most people would go, that's great. You didn't get any death call outs. But for us, we're like something's going on or people haven't been found. And, um, you know, it's kind of a, a morbid thing to say that. But you're kind of wondering, hey, why, why are we not getting a death call? Um, so we do get a lot of inquiries media wise now. Including your incredible show, evidently. Here. Well, I'm glad I got you before you know you got too famous <laughs> and you wouldn't, you know, I'd have to talk to your agent to get you on here. Um, if I had, uh, all right, uh, a request for you next time you get a media thing, if you have a chance to plug in our collaboration with the medical community, uh, my pitch is to make fentanyl testing um, universal in the medical field. Um, so we don't run into cases where uh, persons at the medical examiner and we can't tell a family why why they died because we don't have patient because they got fentanyl in the ICU. We don't know if it fentanyl they used fentanyl beforehand, and and families don't ever get an answer. If we had um, all anytime a doctor wants to know whether uh, you have THC or cocaine or meth, they should also care about fentanyl. And they should get that information automatically without having to, to think about it. So that's our plug. If you get a chance to make that message. Absolutely. Uh, Ed, as we wrap it up, do you have any advice for Garrett Trainer and his prior law enforcement colleagues? I, I think the, the best thing is what we're trying to do right now with um, anyone who reaches out to us or comes in contact with us from other branches of law enforcement. And that is for us to kind of educate them on the safety of it instead of treating it like it's just this very, um, you know, this kind of evil kid that's sitting in the corner. We have to be smart because each person who gets educated needs to push that education onto the next people that they meet. Um, because this issue here is if you tell enough people and you have naloxone available to pretty much everyone, um, because it can't do damage to someone if you deploy it. Uh, it, it just doesn't do anything like that. It can only do good on someone who is suffering from an overdose and educating people to uh, be. And that includes the public to to kind of observe and to see things that are like, hey, that person may be suffering from an OD from opioids and to administer it. Within law enforcement, it's important for them to actually not be afraid of it, to understand how to treat it, come up with a policy within their department as to how they want to um, react to collecting that evidence or how they need to call someone for cleaning it up rather than rolling an entire fire unit or how to even do testing of this. A lot of these departments are so hamstrung, they don't do any testing of it now uh, just because there's so many 
variations of ways to try to test. There's tons of companies trying to develop new processes for this. And uh, there isn't a uniform methodology that's been put in place. So educating yourselves and your department and your officers, paramount on it. And then not to treat them all in the same context that, you know, we traditionally have had over decades of where we get to a point where you say that the person is a drug addict or a junkie, because many of these people fell into this through prescriptions and they were because they had surgeries or they had physical um, issues or, or pain that they were dealing with and their body became dependent to it. And that's, that's the sad truth of it. And we shouldn't be looking at young children that way, especially kids in their teens. I think we just need to take a break and listen to what you just said. We have a law enforcement officer here talking about stigma of addiction. I think that that is amazing. And that means that, that the, the, the stigma message has, has, is, is coming through uh, to hear it coming out, uh, out of you. I think that that's nice to hear that you do your job, which I think is grueling, um, that you have such compassion, uh, towards people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, with the age brackets of people that have been impacted by it, like I said, we had, you know, 14 year olds. Uh, the youngest I was told about the other day was a case in Prescott, Arizona. We're dealing with the local law enforcement there. And they had a, a one uh, that was 12 years old. And you think about what they're consuming. It's not the same thing as when we say someone's been peer pressured and they smoke a joint for the first time with somebody. This is a very serious. Wait, wait, wait. I, I do. I do find that the majority of people who who end up with fentanyl have started uh, their paths with marijuana. Uh, not current, not necessarily currently, but they uh, graduated up. Yeah. Team 10 would tell you that the gateway drug is not marijuana anymore. It is Xanax. Uh, Xanax is at everything we go to. It is amazing how much Xanax is out there um, that people. There is a lot of Xanax out there, but uh, yeah. I, I think it's it's a different clientele, but I bet you even they started out with uh, with fentanyl. I haven't treated a person with a fentanyl overdose until like when's the first thing that you ever used in your life? And it, it usually is marijuana, uh, even though they're not currently using. But I want to really thank uh, Garrett for his question, for, for inspiring today's episode, and to your colleagues in law enforcement uh, across the United States, I urge you to look for champions in the medical community and the prevention community who want to partner with you um, to create the credo model, community response to drug overdoses, putting together the three Ps, public safety, public health, and prevention. They can help you bridge issues with mental health and addiction, and the education goes both ways. It is really fun to work with people in different professions. I love working with you, Ed, because it just brings such a different perspective on things, and uh, you make my job um, more effective. And Ed, thank you so much for um, your insights, your tireless effort in your job, and you know that you can call me 24-7, uh, to help you out and answer. That's the least I could do. Um, but I, I, I would love, uh, I love helping out whenever I can. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. 
If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.